For the last decade, I've been on a mission to help people find expansion in their lives through holistic well-being, physical, mental, and spiritual. This journey, of course, started within with my own healing and then expanded outwards in my career teaching movement, meditation, and healthy eating, as well as practicing energy and sound healing. Through this journey of self-discovery, I have come to learn that my core purpose is to use my voice to facilitate healing for others. On this podcast, I interview expert guests to share some of the tools, approaches, and thought processes that have helped me delve deeper into what it means to be a spiritual being living a physical existence. Dr. David Weppner qualified in homeopathy, naturopathy, and osteopathy 40 years ago and is registered with the Allied Health Professions Council of South Africa. He has been in private clinical practice with a six-year period in executive health management and six years as a hospice-trained facilitator, trainer, and caregiver, supporting bereaved families and terminally ill patients. Additionally, Dr. Dave studied traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, has assisted with acupuncture anesthesia for childbirth as well as fertility support, and offers maternal and postnatal homeopathic care for moms and babies and their follow-up throughout their lives. He has taken a deep dive into addictionology, trauma, and PTSD, as he sees more of this suffering daily, and his study of psychoneuroimmunology, PNI, neurolinguistic programming, NLP, and modern neuroscience, as well as his certification as a mindfulness teacher, has enabled him to practice a fully holistic form of medicine, embracing the totality of a human being. When I asked him why he does this work, he answered, my passion and privilege is participating in a person's journey to wholeness and integration while taking care of body, mind, and soul. When I read this response, it actually brought a tear to my eye because, as you'll hear in the episode, Dr. Dave has played a very large role in my healing journey, physical, mental, and spiritual, since I first stepped into his office 10 years ago after being referred by my midwife to receive acupuncture during my pregnancy. I am very grateful that I was led to him and I have a very deep respect for the work that he does and the approach that he uses to treat his patients integratively and as individuals, with a depth of compassion that can only come from having done the emotional and spiritual work on oneself. And that's why I trust him. I know that he walks his talk and always feel that he is treating me not only with care and respect, but as an equal. I truly wish that more people could experience this type of healthcare or even just know that it is possible. And that's why I recorded this episode. I hope you enjoy. If you find value in this episode or any other episode and would like to support me in getting the podcast out to a wider audience, you can make a donation. Currently, I'm not trying to make a profit from doing this podcast, but I really do believe in the ideas, people and different healing modalities that I'm sharing with you. And I would love for more people to be able to benefit from it. Of course, there are other ways you can also help me. Share your favorite episode with as many people as possible and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening. This both gives me feedback so I can continue giving you more of what you like and it serves to improve my ratings on the platforms. 
And honestly, I would just love to hear from you. I so deeply appreciate every message of support and thanks that I've received. And it really touches my heart when I hear that the content has been meaningful for you. Go to my Instagram account, click on the link in my bio and find the tab labeled support the podcast. You can donate as little as $5 or even less by entering a custom amount. Any amount will be greatly appreciated. And once I reach $100, I can use that for marketing the podcast and getting this info out there. And now on to an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Dave. Thank you for being here. Appreciate your time. Um, I'd like to start off with you explaining what is homeopathy, because I find that a lot of people have a very big misunderstanding about what it is and how it works. Thank you, Rain. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I would really want to start with the opposite and really talk about what homeopathy isn't, because there are so many misunderstandings and um, myths about homeopathy mm -hmm. and it never really gets transmitted correctly um, in, a, in its true form of being both a, a science and an art and structured in very specific uh, principles of practice. So, and, and I get asked the question often from people, oh, you're a homeopath, do you have a natural remedy for something? Um, <laughs> or um, you're a homeopath, you know, can you tell me what vitamins to take? And homeopathy is not vitamin therapy, it's not supplement therapy. Um, it's also not phytotherapy, which is the European uh, form of herbal therapy. So it's not about prescribing herbs, it's also not about the Eastern herbal systems which are Ayurveda and in terms of Chinese medicine you also have um, Chinese herbs too. Um, it's not iridology and so it doesn't fit into any of those categories at all and people often mistake it for that and they'll tell me they've got a homeopathic remedy and it, it's not a homeopathic remedy, it doesn't follow the principles of manufacture the homeopathic remedy. So that's the first thing to get out of the way. The second thing is that it's all natural, um, which is not the same as saying that it's less harmful than medical drugs can be or pharmacoactive drugs can be. Mm -hmm. um, and when people hear that it's natural and they hear that, oh, we're using snake venoms perhaps, or spider venoms, <laughs> <laughs> Um, or certain toxins and stuff, uh, then they can get quite confused about that aspect as well, that we're using a wide range of, of, of drugs, but I'll, I'll explain that a little bit later. So, having got that out the way, it is still true that homeopaths will use all those modalities. So, they will prescribe and they will look at a person's nutritional status and they will sometimes use uh, certain phytotherapies or Chinese medicine. And also, um, many homeopaths are qualified in other disciplines like naturopathy, osteopathy or acupuncture. As you are, right? Yes. Okay. And also in Chinese medicine, 
Um, so they would combine it with acupuncture and your prescription then might contain homeopathic prescription as well as a Chinese medicine. And they work in very different ways fundamentally and um, we can explore that further later as well. So that's what homeopathy isn't. Um, so to try and explain it in, in, in simple terms as a science, I need to go back to the originator in the discovery of homeopathy who was a doctor called Samuel Hahnemann. And in his days, over 200 years ago, medicine was pretty crude. And he became very unhappy with what he see, saw what was happening and how patients were being treated with um, drugs that were actually harming them rather than helping them. So he stopped practicing um, just for moral, ethical reasons and he started translating um, journals and he could speak seven languages, he was a genius, very, very smart man. And in translating one of these manuals, he saw that there was a correlation between cinchona tree and the bark, which gives you quinine, mm -hmm. and the ingestion of that accidentally, and the symptoms it caused looked like malaria symptoms. So when you overdosed on quinine, people got malaria-like symptoms. And he looked at that and went, wow, maybe there's a connection. Now, he wasn't, That's very the, first, mm, he wasn't the first person to notice this. It had been noticed by, by previous um, uh, medical people in the past. And he then wondered if this was happening, could it be a principle of practice? So he then dealt further into it, and initially what he was doing is if he got patients that, for instance, had symptoms of arsenic poisoning, he would then try giving them very low doses of arsenic to see if that would help mitigate that poisoning process. And of course, sometimes that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And what he stumbled upon, which is the genius of homeopathy, is he started diluting it, the medicine, further down. But in that process, he was succussing the medicine if it was a liquid, which means he was banging it really hard, vibrating it, between each step of the dilution. And if it was a powder that he was using, he would grind it and grind it and grind it for each stage of the dilution. And what happened was he discovered that that released some inherent potency in the medicine that through the dilution process and through the potentizing process made it act in a stronger way on the vital force. Mm. So what was happening is that you were no longer having the active molecules that you would have in an active drug, um, but you would have a vibrational resonance that would be released that would then work on the person's vital force. He then went on to expand this concept and he, he wrote enormous amounts at the time. He researched hugely and he started using people to do provings with. So he was giving people the substances over a period of weeks and seeing what symptoms they produced and then he was linking that and recording it and through that, he developed a materia medica and a repertory that's got all the various symptoms that people may have. So that's the foundation of how the drugs work. Now, that was before antibiotics, before cortisone and so on. So 
it really did take off because it was a superior medicine of the day. So it got a lot of adherence, a lot of followers. Mm -hmm. Of course, as medicine has evolved and homeopathy has also evolved, um, there's been a lot of antagonism and there's been a lot of polarization of these two systems. And that's what we're seeing in the whole world today. We're seeing Mm -hmm. polarization politically, we're seeing it over vaccines. Um, that people can't find this moderate middle road where there's not either or, it's both and. Yeah. So, you know, one can use homeopathy with conventional medicine. There's not a problem there. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be one or the other. It's about what's appropriate um, and what's indicated. Yeah. So now, with modern research methods, um, amazing discoveries are coming out that although there are no more molecules in that particular potency that we use, the nanoparticles have gone up exponentially. So there's some other factor that has been introduced here that previously we weren't actually able to discover from scientific experiments. The other things they've done is they've taken those potencies and they've frozen them. I think it was one of the people who did the research on water and then looked at them um, under a microscope and discovered that the structure is completely different to what you would have if you just had ordinary water that you'd succussed up and you hadn't had this ingredient in it. So it's been a sticking point with medicine. And, you know, I remember one person saying homeopathy is the same as putting a drop of our medicine into a river and thinking Mm. it's going to do something. (laughs) And that is so far off the reality of what it really does. Yeah. Well, I know from personal experience how powerful a modality it is. And, um, yeah, I mean, let's talk about that because you, you, you started talking about the succussing and the grinding. And I know that to a lot of people, as soon as they hear that, they're going to go, oh, <laughs> whatever. It's, you know, some sort of witchy, woo-woo, mm-hmm. magical obviously doesn't really work but I love the fact that they're now showing scientifically that something happens have they yet been able to determine what it is that happens through the succussing process besides the fact that these nanoparticles are released um, and that they actually increase through this process and that there's a different structure um, going back to the original principles of Hanuman he spoke about working with the vital force which, you know, is another concept that people start getting yeah, or, you know, apprehensive about. And I don't know why it's so difficult to understand because, you know, it's just basically what a person's um, vital energy is about. Um, and in the East, we've got prana, we've got chi, we've got kundalini, we've got all these other aspects that describe some other kind of energy in the body. Mm-hmm. And we know the body is an electrochemical milieu. We know that, and even like vitamin C can act in an electrical way in the body, not just as a, as a nutritional um, substance. But there's something else as well besides that. And it's not going into a spiritual realm. It's not going into soul and, and spirit and that kind of thing. It really is, you know, when someone's alive, you can see their vital force is either good or bad or, you know, whether it's raised or whether it's depleted. Mm-hmm. And when they're going through a dying process, there's something that starts changing. All the organs are there, all the hormones are there, all the chemicals are there. Everything is there, but something withdraws. 
what is that substance, yeah. you know? And just because we can't see these things doesn't mean they don't exist, you know? As someone once said, if you can measure it, it's not important. If you can't measure it, it's hugely important. Yeah, I love that. What I find very frustrating today is that it's almost like science has become a religion of its own. And obviously even more so now over the last two years, it's become this dogma that you're not allowed to question. And to me, that negates the entire purpose of science. Science is supposed to be about constantly asking questions and constantly testing the theories, trying to prove them wrong in order to prove them right or to discover something new. Mm. And so for me, um, it's exactly what you just said in that saying. It's about uh, when we can't yet measure something or prove it or see it with our eyes, to me, that doesn't automatically mean that it's not there or it's not true. It just means that we haven't yet discovered how to understand it or how to measure it. And so it frustrates me when people say, oh, well, it, it hasn't been proven or it's not peer-reviewed or uh, I can't see it with my eyes and therefore it must be rubbish. Mm. I agree. And I, and I think, you know, we've lost sight of the great um, geniuses and scientists of the mm. past, like Einstein, who said he did not discover his theories through intellectual effort. Yeah. They came to him through inspiration, mm -hmm. which is a completely different thing to the reductionalistic, mechanistic, um, you know, model that we have in science, which says that only material matters. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in my, in my years of practice, more and more has been discovered, more and more things from a scientific point of view with quarks and subatomic particles mm. and so on that we didn't see before, now we can yeah. see them. Um, some people do see energy, some people do see aura, yeah. some people, we can't negate these people, some people do have visions of, you know, premonitions and things. We, I've had it in my own family, with family members have seen something happening and it happened and, you know, you, you, you can't because it's uncomfortable, pretend it's not real. Yeah. So that's the one aspect that, you know, even Einstein said, you know, our biggest delusion is to believe that we're all separate selves. Now that is quite a concept to really take on board because mm -hmm. we live in such a separated, polarized way yeah. that we do not see ourselves as one humanity and one earth, you know. And if we did, our approach to healing would be very different yeah. as well. Um, I love when... <laughs> I read um, quotes by amazing minds like Einstein or Nikola Tesla or even Isaac Newton. Mm. And the quote will go so against what mainstream science thinks today. And then you've got these people quoting all these brilliant minds from the past, but not really taking into account the full breadth of their work, yes. which wasn't just the materialistic, mm. scientific with a capital S stuff. Mm. They all had this different side that was very intuitive and connecting with the stuff that we can't yet see and can't yet measure. To take that a bit further, um, if we just digress a little into <clears throat> the field of acupuncture, which is you know, reputed to be 4,000 years old, um, it has an incredibly rich history. Um, and an amazing background of understanding the universe in a different way and understanding the, the human being um, and illness in a different way. 
and I was once on a panel um, with a professor of medicine and we were having a very antagonistic <laughs> discussion <laughs> and <clears throat> he brought up this question of placebo and said that as far as he's concerned acupuncture is all about placebo and I said to him you just insulted a whole nation yeah. and you insulted 4,000 years of practice that people have found benefit from but on another level you also use this term placebo um, without understanding it because the majority of medical research on drugs has an element of placebo effect that we know about yeah. and in some of those studies it goes to as high as 40% of people doing well on the inert substance mm -hmm. so I think that's another kind of fallacy and myth that we need to dispel that, you know, it's almost as if placebo is first of all nonsense, but it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no one is really taking the bull by the horns and investigating how well does it work because we should then be marketing placebo. <laughs> well, that's exactly what came to mind now as you said that is if placebo, if the placebo effect works so well, then why aren't we studying how to harness that? Correct. And that, I mean, that's I could a, answer why we're not studying that. I'm sure. Because there's no profit in yes, it. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Mm -hmm. And they've said that often about homeopathy, and it then doesn't explain the incredible response that you get from animals. Mm -hmm. um, and lots and lots of work has been done on, on horses, for instance. They're very, very sensitive. And it's amazing how they respond to these vibrations and, and how quick it is as well. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you've got children. Yeah, I was about to um, say, I've seen with my own son, I've been using your medicines on him since he was a baby, and mm. you know, the proof is in the immediate improvement. Correct, and that is another point that that is important, is that people think homeopathy is slow to work, and yes, you know, someone came to me the other day, and the, the 11-year-old has been sick since he was three, and she said, how quickly will we get results? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's going to take a few years of undoing, so it's going yeah. to take longer. But when it's not a chronic condition like that, when it's an acute condition, it will work as rapidly as any other antibiotic would. Yeah. And we know today, I see many, many patients who are onto their third antibiotic because the first one didn't do it and the second one almost did and so on. So, you know, medicine is not that precise anymore from that point of view. You know, it has its strengths, absolutely, in terms of surgery and accidents and you know, that, that area. But the area of chronic illness and mm. increasing metabolic disease, increasing immune dysfunction. Mm. In, we live in a obesogenic society where people's nutrition has gone really, really crazy. Um, you know, all of those things are creating enormous new problems. Yeah, and they're all becoming so prevalent and it's clear that the allopathic medicine is not helping for that. And so it really is time for these alternative ways to become more mainstream again. Because mm -hmm. people don't realize that homeopathy mm -hmm. was the mainstream way Correct. before Rockefeller medicine. Correct. And I think if people can start turning back to these types of methods and, as you say, also addressing what we're eating and all of that, it mm -hmm. will improve these chronic conditions that are unfortunately becoming 
like really epidemic proportion. They're increasing dramatically. Yeah. Some cancers are increasing dramatically. Um, but you're so right because what saddens me through all these years of practice is that <clears throat> we tend to get people that have reached the end of the road. So yeah. they've already been through a, a lot of medication, a lot of treatments, a lot of interventions, which has weakened that so-called vital force. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, side effects that you have to drugs uh, do the same thing. And if people used us as a first line, mm -hmm. they would save themselves so much damage in the future, if you like. Um, so much unnecessary prescribing and medicine will admit that they have overprescribed antibiotics worldwide. Um, they will admit that they've overprescribed some of the other drugs as well worldwide and, and I understand how that happens. I understand that there's also a need for patients when they come in to walk out with something and feel that they've had some help. You know, to send someone home with a flu and two panada and say, that's all you need, you know, feels very neglectful. <laughs> but, yeah, we can quite easily be first-line caregivers mm. um, because we go through the same medical study of um, diagnostics, anatomy, physiology, and it's important for all of us to do a medical diagnosis and to use the full facilities of scans and blood tests and everything else so that you know what you're dealing with. Um, and if one needs to refer, then you can refer. Yeah. But a lot of it is education because, you know, one of the big um, misnomers is that the minute a child gets a fever, just suppress it, <laughs> you know, and, and, and mothers feel better if they've got rid of the fever, yeah. regardless of what's going on, <laughs> you know. What we don't understand is the fever is curative. As long as you don't have an underlying serious illness that is not self-limiting, um, like an acute pneumonia or, or something like that. But with most children's fevers, they're not serious. But the body is actually working, and it shows a really strong immune system. It shows a strong vital force. And what we do is we shut down that vital force, we suppress it, and just like a lot of drugs suppress the end result. They don't actually get to the, the cause. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be much better if we were working together and I think we'd have a healthier population of children. And a lot of my experience has been in the past that I'm really so blessed um, working in this field because I haven't really done any harm. And homeopaths are the least, we hardly ever sued for anything because <laughs> we're just not working in that dangerous space that doctors work in, which is really, you know, difficult for them, no question. But our drugs don't have those side effects. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people have benefited just from coming off all the medication and mm. being put onto something different. That just takes so much of the stress off the system. Yeah. Well, I've certainly, over the years that I've been coming to you, it must be 10 years now because Gavi is 10 years, um, what I've learned is that opposed to when I used to go to normal doctors, you, when you get sick, you leave it and you leave it and you leave it until you're really sick. And you sort of only go to the doctor when you think it's bad enough that you are going to need antibiotics anyway because you know that's what the doc's going to give you. Mm. Whereas now... I like to come to you as soon as I get my first symptoms mm -hmm. because I know that if I get the medicine really quick, 
I can stop it before it even starts mm. and I won't actually get sick. Mm. And whenever I don't do that and I think, oh, I'll be fine, I'll leave it a few days and then I get really sick. <laughs> then it's, Dr. Dave, help me. <laughs> but um, I've certainly found that, that principle of it being a first-line defense Absolutely, um, preventative in, in many yeah. ways. Yeah, and it's also very deep acting. So, you know, when we're talking about acute and chronic diseases, they're, they're treated very, very differently. And going back to the original principles and practice of homeopathy, we've got this huge range of medicines. So, you know, thousands. But, you know, in a, in a daily practice, we're using, you know, between 30 and 40 maybe that we choose from. But all of those medicines have been proven fully on human beings and all the symptoms that they produce has been recorded in our repertories. So we've, we've got this vast array. And as a homeopath, when we're treating a, a patient for the first time or a chronic illness, we want to try and find the constitutional remedy, the one that fits them perfectly, mm -hmm. based on the similimum stuff. So when it's an acute, it's a similimum to the acute, not to the person in general. So what makes it very different is that, and what got me into homeopathy, was I saw that they gave preference to mental symptoms. So when you're questioning a person with any kind of illness, it's very important for us to elicit what those mental, emotional responses are to their disease. So there's the disease, and there's all the symptoms that go with that disease, which may be general to everybody, but then we go into more particulars around that disease. You know, you've got a fever that you want to be uncovered, or do you want to be covered? And, and you see this acting out all the time. Um, you know, you've got a sore throat, do you want to drink hot water or cold water? Mm. Um, these very fine definitions get us closer and closer to that particular drug that's going to cure that person. So, understanding that the mental symptoms are important um, takes us into the deep psyche of the person. And the remedies then start acting on that level as well. Mm. So, that, that's one aspect of it. There's the other aspect where we're looking at the... Um, hereditary influences and we're also looking at generational trauma which is generally very prevalent as well um, and also how was the birth and how were the first 24 months of life because a lot is laid down during that period that will influence that individual later on in life so it becomes very comprehensive and that's what we mean when we talk about going to the root cause, delving really, really deeply into that particular picture. Until we can find that drug that suits that constitution. And now we're doing constitutional prescribing. So even though the person is more or less okay, if we give that to them, they're going to experience a sense of well-being. And even sometimes if they've got a physical problem and you give it, sometimes they'll come back and say, I, I, it's hard to explain. I still got this problem, but I feel good. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, yay, it's working. <laughs> yeah. And that there are laws as to how your symptoms should disappear in the reverse order that they occurred from top down, from within out. So we're watching the nature of all of this and seeing that everything's going 
along this healing path that was defined very specifically by Hanuman and by other people like Herring who gave us the law of cure. So if I'm treating somebody for something and they throw up a new symptom, if it's from the past, I know that can be a healing crisis, it's okay. If it's totally new, they never had it before, then I'm off track. So we have many, many principles that guide us towards this. And that's where the art kind of comes in. Um, because refining that whole process um, takes a, a lot of sensitivity and also a lot of inquiry. And people today don't really have that time. Mm -hmm. um, what would be perfect is if they filled in a 24-page questionnaire. Mm -hmm. But if you give that to people, they tend not to come because it's just too tedious. To <laughs> <laughs> so I have to do the ex excavating myself. Yeah. Um, but that's the complexity of it mm. when we go into the deeper layers of the person and especially the, the kind of um, hereditary things that come through um, and strong things like alcoholism mm. in the family background that have a huge impact um, and various illnesses as well. Um, I really love listening to you explaining all of that because it was actually the next point that I wanted to bring up is this, um, you describe it as an art. And that was something that I saw when I first started coming to you. And I think it's, it's what um, drew me to choosing homeopathy over Western medicine in addition to the fact that it was working was that I'd come from this background where uh, you go to a doctor and the consult is maybe 15 minutes and inevitably it's antibiotics mm -hmm. and they don't really ask you many questions about what you're feeling it's just it's sort of a very surface mm -hmm. conversation and I thought that that was normal and, I mean I'll never forget I think I'd already just started coming to you a little bit and then I went to um, a doctor here in Santon who had two rooms so that he could have this constant conveyor belt mm -hmm. of patients coming in and out. So you would have one patient in the one room, quickly see them for five minutes, pres prescribe an antibiotic, and then while you're busy picking up your bag to leave, he's already off to the next room. Mm -hmm. And because I'd, I'd already seen you and seen the way that you work, when I saw that and I experienced it, I was like, <laughs> actually in my mind, I was like, fuck you. Like you just mm -hmm. took my money and... You gave me no care. Mm -hmm. You really don't care what the outcome is for me. You just want to make sure that you get your 600 Rand, 700 Rand, plus your whatever you're getting for prescribing that drug. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in a complete contrast, when I came to you, I remember the first time I had a, a full consult with you, I was so surprised at what you were doing. And I was almost sitting there going, what is happening right now? Because you would ask me a question and then you sit and I can see you're thinking. And then you would think for a bit and then you turn around and you take a book and then you read something and then you ask me some more questions. And I was just fascinated by the whole thing. But more than that, I felt like you were actually seeing me. And, you know, that was just coming. I, I first came to you for acupuncture while I was pregnant to... Um, because I was overdue, so to oh, help yes. my labor con mm. come on, yeah. And mm. so because I'd just been through that experience of pregnancy where um, in the very beginning I had a gynae who I felt was 
very patronizing towards me and, and wasn't hearing me or listening to what I was saying. Thankfully, I fired him and I got myself a midwife and a gynae who knew what she was doing. Um, but, you know, coming out of that experience and then realizing that actually there are different healthcare practitioners that we can choose who will really sit and listen to you as an individual and think about what is happening to this person, not, oh, it's this symptom and this symptom, okay, everybody's getting it, take this drug. And so that's what drew me to continue using you and then eventually you became my main healthcare mm. practitioner for absolutely everything and I haven't been to mm. any other doctors in the last That's decade. what tends to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really about becoming healthy. You know, it's not about just managing illness. There's a huge difference between those yeah. two. And I, you know, I see the kind of need in medicine to compartmentalize and it has its value um, for medicine and sometimes for people and you know I often say if I'm referring someone to perhaps a surgeon I'm, I'm going he is definitely the best and you're not going there for bedside manners so please that's what you're going to get okay <laughs> don't expect a whole <laughs> holistic thing we'll support you with that you know yeah and that's what people need of course they need more of this holistic approach of who holds your hand when you're going through this whole thing of sitting, waiting to have a brain scan like I had last year? And um, it, was, it was very um, sobering for me to be a patient again and to be going through that process that you described, but also I felt I was in really good hands. Everyone knew what they was doing and um, I would get to the outcome that, that I wanted, but I, I needed medicine to take me to that outcome. And... But I also needed other support, and um, I knew I wasn't going to get it from that place. So what you touched on here, Rain, is so important, and that is patients taking responsibility. So I had a colleague once, I haven't had the courage to put it up on my wall, but he had a thing on his wall saying, you're looking for a good doctor, I'm looking for a good patient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So <laughs> I, you know... It's a very real thing, that, but for me, the way I see what has happened has evolved over my lifetime of practice is that the kind of um, trust has broken down because mm -hmm. so many intermediates are playing out in the medical uh, model. Medical aids are being introduced, companies or clinics are, you know, they're all managed in different ways. And, and the doctors are kind of pawns in this whole thing, mm. trying to do their kind of healing process. But they're being dominated by all of these other influences and demands and, you know, <clears throat> unfair expectations very often. So, yeah, it, it, it's quite complicated, um, but it's, it needs a lot of healing. The healthcare yeah. system, you know, worldwide. It's not just yeah. here. But responsibility is huge. And people have got so used to coming and dumping their symptom on the table and, and say, fix it. And it's like, no, but you got it. <laughs> Don't give it to me kind of thing. And I think homeopathic work and prescribing helps people also to become more aware of their bodies. A lot of people come in and they aren't aware of anything below here. Yeah. And when you start asking the questions, it's a bit surprising to them, you know, um, and weird as well. I'm, I'm beginning to realize now as I talk to you how many patients must think how weird I am that I'm asking these silly things, you know. 
And maybe I need to spend more time doing this introduction for them. <laughs> but I'm just happily going along, being really excited that I've got somebody new because there's no repetitive stuff in practice. And that's why I'm still enthusiastic after so many decades because every person that comes in is a new being with a new presentation. Even though, you know, it might just be the same kind of thing that I've seen a thousand times. This one is different. This one is unique. Um, so, yeah, going down that path, and I've always seen this possibility of depth homeopathy, which then starts integrating the psychology mm. and everything else. Um, but we face many obstacles. And that brings me to one of Hanuman's um, teachings was um, the obstacles to cure that we have to look out for as well. Because sometimes people say it doesn't work for me. Well, mm -hmm. either you've got the wrong medication or there's some obstacle <clears throat> that we need to, and that's where you've got to look at nutrition, you've got to look at relationships. You know, I mean, an abusive spouse can be an obstacle to cure. <laughs> yeah. um, there are a lot of other things in the environment that play a huge role. And, um, but once you take responsibility, it can be such a wonderful journey. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I found really valuable about having you as my doctor is that you have always, like you're constantly educating me on how to take control of my own health, which is the complete opposite mm. of the Western medical model, mm. where you are reliant on the doctor and reliant on pharmaceuticals. Mm. And, you know, I've been coming to you now for 10 years and it's not like you told me some stuff in the beginning and then that was it. It's, it's, I feel like I learn something every time I come to you. Wonderful. And yeah. you've had a, a very big impact on the way that I view my own health and in my understanding that I am in control of my body, mm. whether or not I want to <laughs> face that fact. <laughs> mm. Correct. Yeah. Um, you said sometimes people say it doesn't work for me. I've heard that a lot as well. People say, I, mm. I tried homeopathy and it didn't work for me. Mm. And um, it was interesting how you mentioned the obstacles. Because um, that can also take us back to the placebo effect or its opposite, the nocebo effect. Mm. Mm. Of if you so vehemently believe that this is not going to work, mm -hmm. it won't. Mm. Um, but also, it brings us back to the art of homeopathy. Because uh, for me, witnessing how you so carefully do that excavation and ask about all the different symptoms and everything, and then spend time thinking about it, to me that says that it, it is such an art and requires such skill and a certain type of mind to really make the most of it mm -hmm. and make it work. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps mm -hmm. somebody went to a homeopath who doesn't, <laughs> quite yet have all the pieces fitted together. Would well, you say that's true? There, yeah, there are many different schools of, of homeopathy, you know, and in the past we've had the French school um, and, you know, the German school, American, British, and, you know, previously there was a British um, Royal London Homeopathic Hospital and there was one for children. Um, so it really had its heyday then. Um, and they all had slight differences and every homeopath has got to decide where they're going to fit into this evolving system. Um, in India it's absolutely massive, um, you know, the homeopaths in every village and mm -hmm. they, you know, they share their 
um, experiences with us and because they don't have access to all the first world interventions and x-rays and scans and bloods they, they do amazing work on on terminal cases on really really serious illness and you know it's, it's just remarkable the results they're getting but you know you, you made me realize that you know most people will come expecting like I said in the beginning just a natural alternative you know, how many times I've been asked, do you have a natural alternative to Dormicum or, you know, mm -hmm. to a benzo? I mean, no, a benzo is strong, you know, <laughs> you feel it. <laughs> you know, it will knock you out, you know. We don't have that kind of stuff unless you want to do psychoactive drugs, which is a different healing story. But so there isn't the substitute of like, oh, give me something safe and herbal for something that's not safe and not herbal. Um so they have that expectation and then they go away and maybe nothing changes after that first prescription and they'll say homeopathy never worked. Like I've met people who have said to me they tried therapy, it didn't work. And I go, what did you do? No, I went once. <laughs> I tried therapy, I continued for 26 years because of my childhood drama and it helped me inestimably. Yeah. Absolutely, un unbelievably how much. And I needed it. But, yeah, I didn't go once, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that wasn't going to crack it. I would have liked to have had in the beginning. That's what I said to my therapist. I'm just coming for a month and then I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, one's got to really stick with things sometimes and, and learn about it and open up to it. And, and people are so overwhelmed these days that they just, you know, have limited resources to to take this kind of thing into their fold if they're medically orientated it's much easier to stay with what you know and we've seen that with vaccinations you know people just go on with what they know because they did it to their children you know? well I didn't do it to my children but <laughs> most people do um, yeah so the obstacles are exactly that, a lack of education. We probably should promote ourselves better. You know, we should um, spend more time in, in, in getting that public awareness going. Oh, well, that's what this and podcast wonderful. is Wonderful, and that's why I'm so <laughs> grateful to be able to share um, that people can get a, a deeper understanding. Um, and, you know, even in some of the medical courses now, they occasionally touch on these things and ask the students right. to do some research. So there is an opening that's, up. That's good. But I, I also see with medicine, you know, those students are really hard-pressed. They're under enormous, enormous pressure. Even before they get into the wards, they don't think about anything else. Yeah. By the time they're qualified and got to pay loans back and everything else, they, they, they've got to just do what they do well now. You know, to start going like, oh, what about homeopathy? <laughs> Not going to happen easily. Um, so fortunately, we've got good good university courses now that are putting out homeopaths on a regular basis. Yeah, but the education part is, is really vital. Mm. Um, and as I say, even that keeps evolving because a lot of people um, are practicing homeopathy in the way you can practice medicine. Mm. That, that can also happen. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because we have to spend more time with people. Um, if we really want to get into the nitty-gritties, yeah. that costs, you know, you know and so I, on. I very often 
um, whenever I have the opportunity, I recommend you to people. And I'm always sort of saddened by how shocked people are when I tell them, you know, when I go to Dr. Dave, he spends at least 40 minutes, if not a full hour mm. with me. And, and, you know, he really digs deeper and finds out what's wrong. And, and they're always, they're so surprised by it because they, they have no reference for being mm. treated that way mm. by their healthcare professional. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into homeopathy? Was it your first choice as a young person to study or what led you there? Um, well, you know, given my, my youth, it was a pretty confusing time and I, I really just adored animals. I only had one dog, but I had this thing for animals. <laughs> and um, there was a wounded healer in me that was dormant and, and I thought um, at the time that I should either be, in those days it was a game ranger, you know, because I'm swimming around with wild Africa. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to do that too as a child. Be a wild outfit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so off I went to um, Pretoria University and started a BSc thinking I would go down the way of um, veterinary science. Um, and then at some point, my mother went to a homeopath, she had physical things that she couldn't manage besides her um, untreatable mental condition. But this homeopath um, treated her and it, it worked really well. And I was suffering with sinus and congestion at the time, which, surprise, surprise, every day I walked back to um, my digs from lectures, I would buy a litre of milk and a fat cook. Um, and then on the weekend we would have beer, so that was a perfect storm <laughs> to be walking around with all this congestion. But I went to see this homeopath who was a pharmacist who then studied homeopathy and he had this apothecary downtown in Jabir Park and I walked in and I just felt I'd arrived in this mystical place mm -hmm. with all these medicines and I was totally enchanted. And he prescribed this stuff for me. Obviously stopped me, you know, drinking a litre of milk and a fat cookie every day, <laughs> which probably cured me anyway. And um, I then started uh, looking into homeopathy, and that's where I discovered that it puts so much emphasis on people's mental um, conditions and mental symptoms. And I had felt throughout my childhood that the people around me were... In, in serious trouble. I mean, I looked at the adults and there was confusion. There, were, there was, a, you know, a huge degree of um, addiction and stuff. And I looked and I thought, you know, these people aren't okay. <laughs> this isn't the way life should be. Mm -hmm. And I read a book called Battle for the Mind and I realized, wow, the mind is so important. And I became fascinated by that. And homeopathy had that aspect to it. So I kind of came in in this obtuse way because, you know, it spoke so much about mental symptoms, general symptoms, and that that began my journey. Um, and really, I've never looked back. It's it was, It's been difficult years sometimes. There's been a lot of legislation changes and things we've had to fight in Parliament and a long story, very interesting. Um, but, yeah, so it was actually thanks to my... Yeah, mother in all her <laughs> glory. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, it's interesting to uh, hear you talk about how uh, how much you love the mental aspects of it because I think at the end of the day that is the biggest thing that I've gotten out of having you as my doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, it started off as just being a substitute for a normal GP, but it then morphed into me coming to you for therapy after my divorce. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's been profoundly impactful on me, um, having you support me through that and then through my brother's death. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's now gotten to the point where, I mean, I haven't been coming to you for therapy as much lately, but mm-hmm. at a stage I was coming to you regularly for therapy and hardly ever for physical mm. ailments mm. but there was so much healing in that yeah. um, that I think addressed a lot of the physical stuff in the end. And, and therapy is kind of like a homeopathy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's meeting another person in that absolutely non-judgmental accepting place to allow the acceptance for healing to happen. Mm-hmm. So healing is far more complex than giving a drug. Um, and this is, you've described it really so well from that point of view. And even then, I do remember using certain remedies, um, yeah. you know, for shock and for trauma and for loss. And in homeopathy, we've got all these amazing drugs that you can use that you can give at those times, not just rescue remedy, which, by the way, isn't homeopathy either. That's a Bach remedy. Oh, and a oh, lot that's of people true. Think, uh, I even of, think of it as yeah, homeopathy. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's and that's not made up in a homeopathic <laughs> way. So that's another one that's not homeopathic, but they're wonderful, you know, and yeah. I, I use them too. But if you can prescribe for um, a person in that state, you can then mitigate the chances of that going into a later trauma or going into post-traumatic stress. Um, and that's the value of these early treatments. So even with children, yeah. you know, we look back to see, and it's amazing how many children have a kind of medical trauma. And, you know, I, I certainly have that, you know. I, I inject people and I do acupuncture, but don't give me an injection, you know. <laughs> At least it's going to save my life. But paradoxically, I can I can take blood and give blood. So, but that that thing sits with me from way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if I had have had certain homeopathic remedies, then it, it probably would have softened the impact of all of that. And you know, I had a, a, a really interesting story in terms of understanding how we get these drug pictures and the different medications that we use. Is that we've got a remedy called the Chirostromonium. Um, which is a very interesting one. We see it growing all around. It's like that thorn apple. Oh, yes. It's like a weed. The, yeah. the malt malt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's one of our, it's a big remedy, so it covers a lot of symptoms, but one of the symptoms is um, waking up at night screaming, like children do with a night terror. Mm. And it will really help the majority of kids that have those night terrors if we prescribe that and it will stop that awful condition and when they wake in that state they very often can't be consoled you know they they almost you know their eyes are glazed and they can't see and uh, it's really very stressful for the parents when they're Mm -hmm. trying to manage kids that are night terror like that but anyway that's that's the medication that we will often give but i had a, a patient who um had listened to his um, parents one night talking about their uh, 
days of glory and naughtiness. And that day tried Malpitter. And he and his friend that week coming home from school found the plant and they ingested a whole lot of these seeds on the way home. I just want to interject. Is Malpitter, is that the same as Datura? Yes. Okay. Mm. Right. So by the time he got home, he was beginning to trip <laughs> off his face. <laughs> and, and no one knew what was wrong with him. Um, and fortunately, early enough on, they found out what he and his friend had got up to. Um, so they thought they would just wait for a while and see what happened. This escalated to such a level that they ended up at an emergency clinic. Yeah, because they're very dangerous, right? Well, not physically. Um, probably the worst thing you can do for psychosis and for the worst hallucinations yeah, I, I, I imaginable. I remember as a kid there being like, I don't know if it is a housewife's tale, but that it will make you lose your mind. Mm. <laughs> Pretty much looks like that when you're on it. Yeah. <laughs> not, not something to play with at all. No. Um, the worst imaginable, you know, even as gung-ho, I, I know one particular person who told me that um, they did it in a group and the one person just wandered off the cliff and that was the end of him. Oh. Um, so this young man, and for me it was, you know, interesting because he was displaying everything that we have in the provings, you know, he was trying to walk through walls, he was climbing walls, he was seeing monsters, his body got bitten in half, disappeared, um, but uh -huh. they, they couldn't treat him in hospital, they didn't know what to do with it, they mm -hmm. didn't know what the antidote was. So I said to the parents, take him home and you're going to have to sit him through this, but we can also prescribe to try and mitigate the, you know, um, negative impact on him um, but in this particular proving it's got hydrophobia which is a fear of water he was dehydrating terribly and every time they gave him the glass he would knock it flying wow. and they, they couldn't get any water and eventually I explained to him to hide it in a cup and a Tupperware and then get it into his mouth and he could get the water in so all these symptoms came up that we see when children wake up with these night terrors and the kind of experiences that they're having, and it completely calms them down when we use it as a homeopathic remedy. Um, and when you read the book, he displayed all the symptoms that are there during that intense thing. Now, if you see that as the actual worst possible picture for that drug, when you dial it back, you can get moderate symptoms like that in people. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not walking through walls and things, but <laughs> moderate symptoms. And the stramonium psyche has a feeling of not being worthy, not being good enough, feeling like rubbish. And if you look at the plant, it always grows on rubbish dumps yeah. and on the side of the road. And it's not something you're going to plant in your garden yeah. and admire. And it's interesting that that deeper level psychological aspect to people who need this medication is there. Mm. So, you know, you can prescribe it for the night terrors, but you can also prescribe it for a person. And I had that just a little while ago because there have been many, many kids melting down during COVID. Yeah. And this one young man who was doing very, very well at school and sat and said to me, I'm useless. I feel like nothing and nobody. So that, that picture comes into that, you mm. know, and... That pulled him out of it. Stabbed from me a month later and said he's back to normal. Wow. So there are these, you know, signatures, relationships that go on as well. 
Um, but these poisons and provings of them are also very helpful. So mm. it's fascinating. Like I, I love hearing about this mm. stuff because it, it sort of goes against everything that we um, think it should be, mm. what we've been taught. Mm. Um, and yeah, it does have that like sort of almost mystical side to it when you hear <laughs> that. But mm. I think that's the beauty in it is that there is so much in the universe that we can't yet explain and. And something like this taps into that. It shows us that it really is there, mm. whether or not we can understand it or prove it, mm. measure it. It exactly. is there and it does work. Exactly. The results yeah. are there. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. So it's, it's really wonderful to be able to help in that way. Um, that, this particular guy, he, he went for 20, 24 hours nonstop, oh, never shame. slept. 24 hours. <laughs> The family were exhausted. <laughs> they, sure. they were totally wiped out. Um, and he needed some follow-up counseling afterwards because I was concerned that he could have flashbacks. Mm. Um, which I'm sure he's um, never going to touch another drug again. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he was like, a, yeah, <clears throat> really overzealous with that entrance into hallucinogenics. Mm. Mm. And then physically, was he fine after that? Yeah, yeah, no. There okay. was no, no Just physical off complications at all. Well, exhausted. Yeah. Um, having been so manic during that period and dancing around and they couldn't keep him still. <laughs> 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 he had some good times as well. Um, and we were able to fortunately um, normalize it. And he understood, um, you know, cognitively what had happened and... You know, I mean, the, the, the parents couldn't even chastise him. They were so, <laughs> yeah, I don't think they were so wiped out. They didn't even have the energy <laughs> to by then. <laughs> Besides, they'd actually played a role in this because they were talking about it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so be careful. Be careful what you share. Their ears listening. <laughs> um, I also mm. want to get into how emotion manifests physically in the body especially emotions that we're not processing. And now I'm not sure if this is going into homeopathy or maybe this is more on the Chinese medicine side, which you practice as well, but um, how there's correlation between pain in specific areas of the body at points to certain emotions. It's, it's not directly my field, but, you know, there are certain correlations in homeopathy and acupuncture for instance, around the lungs being the organs of longing and letting go. Um, and that is stated in, in acupuncture philosophy. And in homeopathy, we have remedies that are related to that particular um, emotion that um, talk about unresolved grief. Mm. Yeah, that can also then manifest in the lungs. So there are many other correlations that go on. And, and one can work with that or basically just read that symptom in the present moment knowing that it's arising from the past. So you, you're absolutely correct that all, all emotions get stored in the body. And... Um, lots of work has been done on neuroscience with this um, in mind and showing what happens when you suppress those emotions, when mm -hmm. you don't express them. And suppression is a big problem. 
expression of your authenticity and of your purpose and um, of your just your you know right to be here mm-hmm. in the world can get diminished during childhood because the child has this <clears throat> duality of looking for attachment which is really really important and um, because without attachment they really really do suffer but if that attachment is coming at a cost to the authenticity they'll give up their authenticity so if a child is not allowed to be who he or she is or how they're feeling they will disregard that feeling so that they can still remain attached because they don't want to make mom dad angry they don't want to be rejected mm-hmm. and then later on in life that is going to emerge in some kind of pathology and with that we can go into a field like psychoneuroimmunology pni which is something that I've also studied and, and, and practiced through sometimes neuro-linguistic program. Psycho-neuro-immunology. Mm. Huge field that? of medicine, which is the nicest side of medicine, because it's where, on a simple level, mind-body relationship is correlated. Okay. And the so psychos- right up my alley. Yeah, the psychosomatics, <laughs> so-called, have a scientific basis for them. Mm-hmm. In fact, even placebo can sometimes be explained through that mm-hmm. psychoneuroimmunology, how all of those are intertwined. Yeah. And and we, we saw this with COVID. I, I heard from four or five different medical sources how important a person's mind state was during COVID mm-hmm. and also going into hospital and perhaps being isolated in, into ICU. And... <clears throat> Certain mind states seem to be correlating with not such good outcomes. Mm. Um, so that's a massive field. And, you know, we're aware, we're aware of it, but there, there are different ways of working with it, with, with you know, whole major fields of, of psychotherapy and tapping and uh, mm. you know, body work and craniosacral, all, all of that kind of stuff helps. Uh, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, um, all of that is vitally yeah. important for getting in touch with that stuff. I started using tapping last year at a stage I went through a bit of a rough patch with all of this mm. COVID drama. Mm. And I started using tapping and I, I was really mm. amazed by how quickly mm. and powerfully it can shift your yeah. energy, yeah. your mindset, your emotions. Yeah. And it's doing meridian stuff, of course, yeah. when you work there. So it, it's got its basis in acupuncture um, principles. Mm. Yeah. But COVID has been a, a phenomenal wake-up call, and no one has been immune to this. And what people don't realize, too, is they're going to doctors that are traumatized right now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so we, 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 none of us are you know, outside of this. And, um, and what we're seeing is you know, how different people have reacted to the same stimulus. Mm-hmm. And that's again back to the individuation that we have in homeopathy. Our whole issue is to individuate every person. And, and biological individuation is not really recognized too much in medicine. Yeah, And you cannot individuate only the biology because that is a bigger person than the body. You know, you're not your body, you're much more than that. Mm-hmm. So we've got to look at those other factors. And an interesting thing that came up for me was my reaction to COVID um, was not what most people had. 
And because I grow, grew up in a chaotic environment, chaos is normal for me. And I noticed other people who had had similar backgrounds who were handling this very well. They were like, welcome to my world. <laughs> this is where I've lived. Now you guys are experiencing it. <laughs> that has been my experience. <laughs> That you can almost feel like a bit, just going, uh, okay, we'll yeah. get through this. Yeah, you can almost feel a bit it's guilty. Just another crisis. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then watching um, people around me who perhaps haven't experienced crisis mm. or big trauma in their lives just falling apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, those are, are, are completely different reactions, of course, mm. and um, they need to be. Um, recognized when we're making prescriptions and trying mm. to help people you know, not just oh it's anxiety you just give one thing for anxiety it's like, no, how does that anxiety manifest um, and the same for depression it's a concept yes it's a, a, a diagnostic thing that's in the manual but at the same time you know grief is not depression yeah. Sadness is not depression. Yeah. Um, pain is not depression. You know, they all have very different nuances, but they all get treated under one umbrella and therefore sometimes not so successfully. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had something interesting happen this week. So I've had this pain in my thumb uh, for a couple of weeks already. And I keep on thinking, oh, I, I just need to like roll out or stretch out the fascia in my palm and then it will fix it. Uh, but I keep on forgetting because I only feel it with certain movements. Actually, I feel it when I pull my pants down when I'm getting undressed. And that's the only time I feel it. So I keep on forgetting about it and it's not that serious. And then a day ago or two days ago, all of a sudden I have the exact same pain mm. in my big toe <laughs> on the right. So both on the right side, thumb, and now the mm. big toe as well. So I just find that very interesting. Yeah, oh. Oh. it always interests me how these um, symptoms show up in the body and mm -hmm. where mm. are they really coming from? Mm. And I mean, obviously, on a mechanical level, yes. If I stretch up the fascia of my palm, it's mm. going to help. It's going to relieve that tightness and whatever. But mm. where did it originate from? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a <clears throat> it's a puzzle, mm. you know. And we have to put all the pieces together. You know, as one of um, my, my, my teachers in homeopathy is retired now, said there's many entrances into the labyrinth of the human being. Mm. And that's why <clears throat> it's so important to give recognition to all these other various therapies that people are offering, you know. Um, and they're not replacements for anything else. Mm. They're, they're adjuncts and... Um, you know, different people need different approaches. Yeah. Um, That's, so. uh, one of the things that made me feel right in the beginning that I could trust you was that you didn't, you're not dismissive of Western medicine. Mm -hmm. And you said it in the beginning of this podcast that they can work together. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt safe with you because I think in the past I had been to a homeopath who was had more of an all or nothing approach. Mm -hmm. And then... Me as a patient, if I go to somebody like that, how do I know if perhaps this is the situation where Western medical 
um, Western medicine would be appropriate as opposed to homeopathy. If I don't know that you as a practitioner are going to refer me on when necessary. And that's why I feel that I can trust you so much because I know that if you think that I need something else, a different modality, or I need to go see a certain type of doctor, you're going to refer me on. You're not going to be like, oh, don't worry, I can fix this. Well, you know, there's the other side to it in that when I've tried to refer some people, they got really angry with me. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? You can't fix everything? (laughs) Why do I come to you then? (laughs) Yeah, I've... um, mm. So there's that part to it as well that people from their side could want an all or nothing thing, um, and that that can be very stressful for us as well. But you'll find out eventually. You know, everybody deserves the doctor they get in a way. Um, you know, that's the bottom line, and one has to take responsibility for that too. And it's important that people connect. Yeah, um, it really, really is important and um, that they also can ask the questions you know there's this when I'm you know sending people back to an oncologist or whatever I said please take someone with you and make a list of your questions before you go because you're going to forget in that moment of pressure and everything else so have your list have someone with you so they can hear the answers because you're not going to hear the answers you're going to be so stressed um, that's so, great advice mm, that's for anybody. Very important. Mm-hmm. And I think also, you know, everyone has a right to getting second, third opinions. And it's it's very confusing sometimes because you can end up with three opinions and that doesn't really help you. And then you go, do you keep going down this line because it becomes very costly as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all part of finding out as you go along, you know, um, and everybody's responsible at the end of the day, however they don't want to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that ignorance is bliss is not true. If you just kind of take what you're given and ask for more and more and more, you're going to get it. And then you can't turn around and blame the doctor. Yeah. Well, I think that's what happened with me. <laughs> um, but I'm very grateful for it. Because it's, it's only led to good things. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, something that popped into my mind just now when we were talking about the physical manifestations of emotion. And uh, one of the, my first like very direct and obvious experiences of that was, um, it was at a stage when I was still only coming to you for physical ailments because I thought that was all that was possible. Mm-hmm. And um, it was towards the end of my marriage and I had this thing with my throat where I just had this like constant, um, it felt like a lump in my throat, but it got so bad that I was struggling to swallow my food. So I wasn't eating much. And, and um, I remember I brought Gavi to you for something. He was sick and I mentioned it to you and you said to me, what do you need to say that you're not saying? And it, it was almost like a slap in the face because I'd never had a doctor ask me a question like that in response to a physical ailment and it really got me thinking about where I was at in my life and what I was busy dealing with and that was sort of um, it was like you opened a window into this whole other world Um, wonderful yeah and then just went down a really wonderful path of actually addressing all the stuff that I'd been stuffing down including my own voice and look at me now I have a podcast (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but to recognize you, that you could actually take that one, that you could mm. actually hear that, and that you could work with it. Yeah, because yeah, like most people that know me today and, and know me as I am, wouldn't believe that, I mean, that was only six years ago, mm. six, seven years, I, I had this incapability of speaking. Amazing. Speaking mm. my thoughts, speaking what I was feeling, and so to look back at that and see how far I've come where I'm now so vocal about things mm. and sometimes get myself into trouble <laughs> for it. Um, you know, that to me that is testament to the work that you do mm. and how much you've assisted me thank in that you. journey. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Mm. You're so welcome. From my heart for uh, everything that you've done for me and my son and thank you very much for being here. It was a really interesting conversation and I learned a lot from it. It's okay. really great. Mm. I like to end off the podcast with something just a little bit more um, personal and lighthearted and unrelated to whatever we've been speaking about. Okay. Is there a book that you are busy reading and or what is one book that you would highly recommend? You know, it's so interesting because I've seen people or read people answer this question <laughs> many times and I'm an avid reader and I cover a lot of fields mm. um, from you know spirituality and metaphysics uh, all the way through to medicine and just recently read a whole tomb on the history of cancer and um, but we started to help um, our son read more. We started family time where we read every evening oh, so that he can be supported in his reading because yeah. he's always disliked it and now he's beginning to realize that he needs it with matric around the corner. So yeah. he's got a, a book to kill a mockingbird and mm -hmm. um, I saw it on the top 100 list which he went through the other day and was checking how many I'd read on that list. <laughs> <laughs> And I felt so proud every time I said, I read that one, I read that one. <laughs> but there were a few that I was like, what? So, yeah, that's that's where I am at the moment. Okay. I'm reading um, yeah, their uh, school list books. Mm. <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah, I, everyone should read it. It's on the top 100. Have you read it? I don't think I have. Okay. <laughs> Damn it, now I'm going to have to read it. I'm actually, there's so many books that uh, I feel like I must read because as an avid reader and a writer, how could I not have read that book? Then on the other hand, I'm it's like, a lifetime journey. I want to read. Mm. <laughs> and then second question, what is the one daily practice that you would recommend everybody incorporates? To improve their health or their wellness. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a few that I do, uh, and um, I've just kind of chunked it up recently, and I've, I've added to my repertoire of what I do on a daily basis and a weekly basis. Um, but meditation has been something I've been involved in since I was um, sixteen, and um, in those early days, I was also secretly doing yoga. Secretly, secretly okay. because it was the it occult. Was evil. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I was hiding out and standing on my head and doing all of this kind of stuff. And, and you know, I was hoping that I was going to be visited by spirits and crazy stuff would happen. <laughs> so I was testing this occult stuff out and it stayed very quiet, you know. I just got very flexible. <laughs> but so, I, and I became, a, you know, I'm a mere trained um, mindfulness um, instructor as well. And so... Meditation takes many forms, but for me, there is my kind of practice, and then there's my reflection. And I think the most important thing is to kind of approach the day from a centered place. Mm. And it doesn't have to be long, but you do need to stop <laughs> everything for 10 minutes or more, if you can, and just reflect on where you're going today. You know, where are you going on your journey and your life? I, I don't mean pick and pay all this, <laughs> but what are you actually doing, you know? And are you living from the outside in or are you living from the inside out? And what are you going to take into the world? And where are you going to be at the end of the day? You know, and this is the only precious day you've got, which most people don't really recognize as impermanence. I thought that... COVID would wake people up and say, Yo, you know. I think it woke them up for a minute. <laughs> yeah. That this is your day to shine. <clears throat> and I don't mean it in that, you know, uh, over kind of emphasized positivity kind of structure. Um, but just giving yourself that time. Because there's so many distractions now. Mm. And so many directions that people are pulled in. That they lose that inner connection. And yeah, it's it's the most important thing. Yeah. I think that's a great way of encapsulating it because I also I, I start my day with my morning practice. I mean, sometimes my morning practice only happens after I've taken my son to school or had mm. my first morning client, but I start my day mm. <laughs> with my morning practice. And if I don't, I have a very different day compared to when I do. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've just um, summed up so well is that and then people want to know, well, what does it include? And it's less about what you're doing. It's more about just taking that time, mm -hmm. even if it's just the 10 minutes, mm -hmm. to do whatever practice it is that centers yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. What suits you. And, and exercise. I, yeah. Absolutely non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. Whether it's walking for 15 minutes or, you know, doing yoga or qigong or anything, that makes a huge difference. You know, everyone who comes to me, I tell them 50% improvement of all your complaints if you just start exercising. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's a big thing. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like, share with your family and friends, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at rain.dun or email me on rain at raindun.com. To learn more about my different services and offers and explore how we can work together to help you find more vibrance and expansion in your life, visit my website, raindun.com.